welcome back to the second half of the show. And uh, this is our act show that we do every single month. And the host that we turn that over to is the team the So, Ingie, take it away. All right. Thank you, Rob. Yes, uh, welcome to uh, the Water Zone Ag Podcast. This is Ethos Carter, and we look forward to having our guest, Patrick Kavanaugh, visit with us today, uh, this evening, I should say. Um, and he's with California Ag Today. Um, he's a veteran journalist that we're going to be talking to about what's going on out in the field uh, from his perspective. So welcome to the show, Patrick. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I know you're out in that hot Arizona land today, too. We were just all comparing what our temperatures were, and I bet uh, out in Tucson you're a bit warm as well. Yeah, we're about 105 right now, about 110. Oh. We're at 108 right now, actually. Tomorrow the high yeah. will be 109, but it's a dry heat. I love it. <laughs> it's a dry heat. That's what I was going to say. Well, Patrick, for our listening audience, let's um, uh, give a little more background on you before we dive into some questions. Um, first of all, you hail from Florida, from the University of Florida, um, where you studied ag production, and you were actually a farmer in Casa Grande, Arizona, for a number of years, and I have been to Casa Grande. I know some people there, so uh, it's a cool little farming area out in Arizona. And then you became an editor and started writing articles and got into the journalism field. And in 94, you launched Pacific Nut Producer Magazine, which covers a bunch of different nut crops. And in the 96, you launched Vegetable West magazine, which covers a bunch of vegetables. And um, and then in 2011, you started your own um, uh, daily uh, radio show and got involved in TV broadcasting and web video reporting and all kinds of stuff. Um, and in 2014, you and your wife, Lori Green, launched what is known today as California Ag Today Radio Network. So lots of lots of stuff that you've been doing. Uh, you sold out from that, but you continue to um, collaborate and uh, produce a daily tree nut report. And uh, you know that's a huge sector in our state, worth over eight billion dollars. Um, the tree nut area, so that's an important area. And last but not least, you have been recognized by the Fresno County Farm Bureau as a um, top journalist. Um, so welcome to the show, Patrick, and maybe maybe start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in agriculture and, and water and all that jazz. Certainly, Inga, that's great, and I'm all ag all the time, it seems like, and I love it. I have a lot of passion for it, and how it all started it was 1972. I'm sitting at the dinner table in Orlando, Florida. I was a junior in high school. You know how we all just eat every day? And we take it for granted. We don't even think about it. Oh, this is good. This is good. I put my fork down. We had some roast beef there, some green beans and mashed potatoes. You know, typical. It was a Sunday afternoon dinner meal we were having. I said, now, wait a minute. I just stopped the conversation at the table. I said, where did all this come from? It, It just dawned on me. Now, obviously, I was smart enough to know that farmers grew it, but how did it all come together? How did it get distributed to us? How did it get to the grocery store? What about the cold chain? How did everything stay so fresh until it got to my mother's and dad's refrigerator and being cooked and served? And my mom was, was clever enough to say, well, Patrick, it's the agricultural industry is big, it's vast, it has a lot of moving parts, and that's how it all got here. And, you know, you're, you're onto something, you know, asking that question. At that moment, I decided to become part of agriculture, and I wanted to be part of it. Because 
you know, farmers do so much for all of us. And it's amazing that there's so few farmers and the masses enjoy what they provide three times a day or four times a day or five times a day because we all snack, you know. So yeah. that's how I got involved in agriculture. That's really what I did. Well, that's that's very cool. I wonder how many juniors in high school um, have the four foresight or the you know the consciousness to ask where their food comes from maybe, maybe it'd be cool if more people did ask that and that's um that's really great that at such a young age that you were you were interested in that and you know in in the olden days like millions of years ago not millions but thousands of years ago everybody was a farmer you know everybody was hunting and gathering and then farming and getting their own food and you're right today less than what one percent less than one percent of the population is involved in producing our food yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're very dependent on a very small sliver of society for our daily needs. And, uh, yeah, so w- that's what we talk about here is uh, how, how we get our food and how we use our water to get it. And, um, you know, one of the things about the Water Zone Ag podcast, you know, we, we pretty much build the show as, uh, quote-unquote, advancing the water conversation. You know, people may ask, why do we need to talk about water? Well, because it is so important. It is the key ingredient to producing our food that we all need every day. And it's a limited resource that everybody wants a piece of. If anybody uh, remembers the last 20 minutes of us talking about um, uh, the water roundup from Chris um, Austin from Maven's Notebook, we see that there's a lot of different parties, you know, the farmers and then, you know, we people, the urbanites, and then the environmentalists on which we depend, they, they, we all need this water. So I'm wondering from your perspective as an ag journalist, um, how do you approach this, this challenge that we have of reconciling all of these, all these various needs and demands upon our water uh, with a limited resource? You know, how do we all get along and, and yeah. get through you know, this, this uh, challenge that we have today? Well, let me start with this, okay, Inga. This is important for people to know. A lot of people think that agriculture is the big user of water in California. They're the, they use the vast majority of water. Not true. On average, about 117 million acre-feet fall on the California every year in the, form, in the form of rain and snow. Two-thirds of that water that comes in from the snow melt and rain is produced in northern California. It fills up that big Shasta and Oroville Reservoir in Northern California, and that water is transferred south to the Sacramento Delta. Now, look, listen to this. 75% of the two-thirds of that supply of water is used for environmental purposes, for endangered species, and to prevent saltwater intrusion into the Delta. 6% of what's left is used by Delta farmers. The rest is exported south from the Delta for farms and cities and it represents about 16 to 18% of the water. You know, so that's a long ways from 80% of the water. But of course, yeah, the 80, the lower... from what I understand, Patrick, the 80% is um, what percentage of that taken for humans. So, uh, a site, you know, if you look at that 116 million acre feet that fall in the state, if you take away what already flows into the environment and say, okay, how much is used by humans for ag and our cities? then a big percentage of that, whether it's 60 or 80, um, uh, is actually um, used. And, you know, it, it's a correct number depending on which way you look at it. In fact, there's a great yeah, I, yeah. um, article on that on Maven's Notebook with a 
really super duper map that shows what you just said, that a lot of it goes into the environment, but from what we extract for human purposes, a, a large a large majority of it is used for, for agriculture, for growing our food. Yeah, and a large part of that, look, the large, it, it, let's just say it is 80% then, but 99% of that water that the tree takes up through the roots, flowing through the tree or vine or tomato plant, out the stomata cells, which are specialized cells in the leaves, that water transfers up through the trees and exits stomata cells in the form of water vapor, which goes back into the atmosphere. You know, in ag, plants really don't use water. They just borrow it. So you got to keep that in mind, too. Okay? Yeah, they're kind, of a, they're kind of a little water processing plant. It's a circular. Yeah. So, you know, you know, there's, no water, there's no new water made every year. It's just recycled from day one. <laughs> yeah, but going back to your question, how do I approach this challenge in my reporting, you know, that, that the competition of water for, for ag and urban environmental yeah. water. But, and and the, it is a lot of competition, but I look at it with, you know, there are laws and regulations which, you know, dictate who gets the water, and that's it. And so the, what we look at is how farmers use the water. And farmers are using the water in the most conservation way they can. They can serve as much as they can. You know, before it was all flood ir irrigation. Now companies like Toro, they make drip irrigation, and drip and micro-irrigation came in, which are very much water-saving techniques and irrigation techniques, and most of them, now that drip is going underground and, and actually becoming more, uh, you know, more conservative on the water use, you know. Most tomatoes, processing tomatoes, are, are, are subsurface drip. Same thing with cotton. So we look at this and we approach, we, we write stories or report on it because many times, to get being on radio and the website, the consumers hear us, our voices now. With the trade magazines, only the, only the, we were just what they call preaching to the choir, you know. Yeah, Only yeah, yeah. the growers were, were talking, were hearing what we were saying. Now the school teachers and the businessmen that are, that are moving back and forth to the office are hearing what the growers are doing, and they're hearing that they're conserving water as best, as best they can. They can always do better, you know. They can always make sure their irrigation system is, you know, flushed out and running at high, you know, high efficiency. That will even conserve more water. So we report on that, and try to make sure that growers are getting the 101, 102, 103, you know, of irrigation. So that's what we yeah. do in terms of our reporting. Yeah, so your radio show actually reaches the general public and not just the, the growing uh, uh, community as well. Is that true? Yeah, because, yeah. Yeah, because we're on regular radio. We're on talk radio uh, shows, uh, yep. stations, and, we're on, and we're, on, we're on many radio stations throughout the San Joaquin Valley and even in areas in Northern California, and are, and they're not just 5 to 6 a.m. They're a little later in the morning. We even have midday reports, and the, the, the footprints of these radio stations are far and wide. So obviously people tune in the radio and listen to their favorite shows, especially on AM, FM. A lot of them are FM stations that carry talk shows as well and some music. They hear this, and they, we try to give them relevant, relevant information that they can learn from. Yeah, that's great. So it's really more of an education. So your approach is, hey, let's educate people on what's, what's actually going on, and then hopefully, you know, everybody can get along. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Hey, well, I, you had a really cool article lately um, about how the growers are preparing for the new state um, uh, groundwater uh, management act, uh, which is basically a law that was passed to 
say that we can't um, deplete our groundwater aquifer, um, you know, unsustainably. Otherwise, you know, we won't have any water left under the ground. And that would be really bad if we didn't have any snow uh, hit the mountains because that's our reservoir of water normally. And the groundwater is our, our uh, savings account. Um, so tell us a little bit about that and what sort of technologies might help us, um, you know, organize and plan and uh, meet the requirements of, of sustainability. Yeah, well, this is something that was just it was stunning to the ag industry because they did this at the height of the drought. They, the governor at the time said, look, we cannot, this is non-sustainable, taking all this, yeah. this groundwater out. So. But they were forced to do that, to be totally transparent and honest here. They were forced to do that because the environmental community took the water away from them because they mm. refused to allow the water to go south from the delta. They said the water's got to stay up here to protect the species. The water's got to stay up here to protect the salmon. We need to have excess water to protect the, the saltwater intrusion. So many of those farmers got zero allocation, but they paid for it anyway. You know, they, they're on contract to pay for it. But mm-hmm. they were forced to keep, in order to keep their trees alive, a lot of these are almonds, pistachio, and walnuts. Almonds, the biggest crop, on 1.3 million acres now. There were a million acres during the drought, and now they've grown to 1.3 million. They were forced, in order to keep their trees alive, to use that groundwater. And the groundwater is part of their portfolio. They use it in an emergency such as this. But the drought was very persisting. It was six years long, starting in 2011 and didn't end until 2017. And they got, and it was, and, and the rivers weren't. There just wasn't any much rain and snow, so they weren't getting surface water from their from their irrigation districts all along the west western front of the Sierra Nevadas. And anyways, this is what happened. So they were forced to a sigma is now as uh, uh, a big hammer, and they're going to say, look, by 2040, this thing's going to kick in, and somebody's going to come knocking on your door, and it's not going to be the sheriff Mims from Fresno County because he's already said <laughs> she's not going to do it. <laughs> uh, they're going to. Someone's going to say, "Look, I'm sorry, Mr. Uh, uh, Jones. You you can't farm anymore. You're going to have to leave your property, and you just you can't plant. You can't plant any more crops. So that's it for you. We we don't know what's going to really happen. There may be some massive lawsuits against this Sigma, uh, uh, this Sustainable Groundwater Management Act when it happens. There's maybe a war chest of money being developed right now to sue the state of California. You can't really just come in and take away our groundwater rights." without any warning at all and force us into this situation. But, but you know, I think, personally, I think a lot of the industry is in kind of in denial because it's still, you know, 20 years away. And we're, and they're still, you know, they're planning to continue to plant crops. They're very bullish on agriculture. Yeah, well, and, I really hope that they don't just do another lawsuit. We have enough lawsuits. We actually need to do things. And what I really liked about your article was that there was a, um, yeah, it was uh, you know using technology, a very simple technology that many of us have uh, on our oh, homes yeah. and many industries have called a water meter. We should well, yeah, and that's one of the, the things water. that are happen. Yeah. They're going to meter their pumps. They're going to meter their pumps on their ground, and that's something that growers aren't used to having meter because they know that the state of California will know how much water they're using. So they're yeah, hesitant the seller, to put meters. Yeah, but the seller that you interviewed was just you know basically his point of view was that. You know, you may be afraid of the data that, um, you know, transpires out of measuring your water. You're afraid of having anybody know what you're doing. But on the other hand, if you're part of one of these groundwater management 
agencies, which every grower has to be a member of, to show, to prove to the state that, hey, I'm not overdrafting my groundwater, it's going to be nice for you to be able to show this is exactly what I did and maybe I was sustainable. And um, Exactly. Aren't, aren't they going to have to be able to prove what their use was or wasn't? Yeah, it's data that they need. And having the, having the meters on their wells gives them data because if they don't provide their own data, someone else is going to pr- provide it for them. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you. So they're recommending, and this guy from the from uh, Aegis Groundwater Management. He's a consultant, Chris Johnson, and and he's a consultant. And he uh, suggested that look, you've got to be able to to make decisions. And putting a meter on your well is certainly the one step to do it. Because so what many, like you were saying, the the different GSAs are forced to do. What they're forced to do is either accept existing data or face value function information, oh, you know, because they're not really sure of what the growers are using. So the growers can say, look, this is what I'm using. So yeah. the well, you know, it may very well misrepresent what the basin as a whole is going to go through. And regulators, they put restrictions on the farmers and growers based on the assumption of what they're using and not really what they're using. Yeah, I would th- I would think that you know the ag community. I mean, the ag community has basically been been messaging for many years now that they are efficient, and you know, in many ways they are. A lot of them are using drip irrigation from people like the Toro Company and doing a really good job with water use efficiency and production, you know, crop per drop and all that kind of stuff. So I would think that it would be in their best interest to be able to prove it by showing that. Hey, my tree uses three acre feet, and that's pretty much what I drew from the ground, and you know, not a not a drop more, and um, that should be considered hopefully sustainable. I mean, there may be a point where you can't have as many acres because there's just too many acres drawing from a particular groundwater basin, and that's a tough deal. Uh, you know, we talked about that. That's um, yeah, that is going to be exactly. very very tough, and we've had folks in the almond board on the show just saying there will be a reckoning we may be overplanted um our our permanent crops which which are not um flexible you know a row crop you can choose not to plant it that year and get through the drought but a tree crop like you just said i have to water that or else i'm going to lose the crop exactly so maybe we were a little over exuberant and having 1.3 million acres of almonds when a drought may occur and you're not going to have that that savings account of the groundwater to, to draw from. But maybe other crops will go um, out to support those more permanent crops. I mean, the state has 8 million irrigated acres, and a lot of those crops are not as valuable as fruits and nuts and vegetables. So maybe some of those will go out, maybe, and and be um, prioritized for the higher value crops that don't have um, flexibility. You think that might happen? That may happen because I think farmers are smart and they know what they, they know what their 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 fields can provide. They will find a way. They will yeah, all absolutely yeah. find a way in a crop to grow that's probably more drought tolerant, that will give them the sustainable yields and the prices that they can to support their families. Sure, sure. Well, Patrick, you're involved in all sorts of different types of crops in the state and probably through the West. And I thought maybe it'd be interesting to ask you to kind of compare and contrast um, the California's major crop categories. You know, as a journalist, you probably are walking all of these different fields. But, you know, for for instance, the nut crops that we just talked about, you know, pistachios yeah. and walnuts and almonds, 
uh, versus the vegetable crops like, you know, lettuce or tomatoes or carrots or, um, you know, um, strawberries. That's not a vegetable, it's fruit. But, um, but those are annual, annual row crops. So yeah. kind of, kind of uh, walk us through what the differences are in terms of farming those different well, the, groups of crops in terms of sure, well, the biggest the value and the logistics. Sure. The, the, biggest, the biggest sector are the nut crops. They represent about $8 billion, and they serve out on 1.95 million acres. The biggest crop is almonds on 1.3, followed by walnuts on 350,000 acres, and pistachios 300,000 acres. And I report this on, I report on this crop regularly in Pacific Nut Producer Magazine. These, yeah. are, these are permanent crops, obviously, and they, they, they're, 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 they're all mainly on drip irrigation and micro-irrigation. They're, yeah. their, and, and they're, they're, they're doing all kinds of things, deficit irrigation. They're, they're trying to use less water where they can during certain times of day, getting it all, only irrigating at night, things like that. But the, um, and, the, and the next major sector are the vegetable crops. They are nine, they're like 985,000 acres, and they represent about 40% of the U.S. vegetable acres. And uh, and they and that when you look at vegetables, that's like a double crop. They're a shorter they're a shorter a season crop. They don't take as much water to produce an acre of lettuce or broccoli, but they also get a, three or four crops a year, at least three crops. They can turn that crop they can turn those fields around three times in Salinas Valley and then go to the desert in the wintertime. Then following that are grapes. They're a six point three billion dollar crop on about hundred and eighty thousand acres. And the biggest sector of that are the wine grapes, which are about 500, over 500,000 acres of wine grapes. And then citrus is another major crop that's $3.3 billion. They're on about 324,000 acres of citrus. Now, these are all permanent crops except for the vegetables. And they are, they, the growers are, water is part of their, one of their major, major, Expenditures, not just in the drip and the micro and the filtration stations, but what they use, and if they're on, you know, and they're trying to, they're trying anything to use less because if they have to buy water, if they're in an irrigation district like Westlands Water District, which only got a 20% allocation this year, and they they represent about 700 farmers out there on the west side of Fresno County, they need to purchase water, and it's going to run right. them about $700 an acre foot. So. The water is a big deal for, for these permanent crops, less so for the vegetable crops because they, most of those crops are grown under, under, with subsurface drip, and they can turn, a, turn those fields around and be able to um, get that crop to market a little cheaper. But it's, it's a much, much bigger risk, especially during the pandemic, COVID. Oh, I know. I mean, I, I think it's, um, it's just tragic. Uh, those who are most vulnerable in our communities are being hit the hardest because the working conditions are pretty tough, you know? I mean, to, to harvest crops by hand or, you know, um, packing sheds, um, slaughterhouses, um, very, very, very tough. And we'll, and we'll talk more about the pandemic after we finish this topic. I, I wanted to also ask about the field, what I call field crops. I kind of differentiate the different uh, crop categories as permanent crops, as you just described, you know, the trees and the vines that are in, they're not permanent like forever, but they're in there for maybe decades. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, you, yeah, and, you know, you, you, they're perennials, they keep going year after year, whereas a vegetable crop, you, you 
plant it, and then you harvest it, and then you typically uh, till it under and start anew. And so yep. if you don't have water, you probably wouldn't plant that. You would wait. And then a third category would be field crops, such as wheat and corn and alfalfa. Um, you know, they're also annualized crops except for alfalfa. That is a three- to seven-year crop. Um there's a lot more flexibility with those crops, wouldn't you say? Yeah, there's a lot. Alfalfa was uh, was was the biggest user of water before almonds became 1.3 billion million acres. Right, right. It's, it's the acres. biggest field crop. Yeah, we yeah. don't grow much. We do grow winter wheat here, you know, primarily, uh, and yep. they rely on the winter rains to get it established. And it's pretty much it can be grown just on that winter rain to get the roots down, and they can they can pretty much get that to harvest without irrigating much more. And corn, yep. see, there's I know there's a lot of sweet corn down in the val and that in Imperial Valley, but most of, most of the corn in the Central Valley is 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 you know. In a certain area, and, and they grow it for tortillas mainly, and of course corn for corn silage for the dairies. A lot of corn is grown for the silage for dairies, yeah. and that does yeah. take water. But usually, that's recycled dairy water, and that's another thing growers are doing. They're recycling their water as much as they can. Oh. Well, good. Well, tell us more about that. Are there um, are are there ways to use the nitrogen that's in the water as well, or are they having to take it out, or? Well, yeah. Well, they you, the growers are aware of how much nitrogen is in their in their groundwater. They run tests. They need to know because they do nitrogen budgets, and they need to know how much nitrogen is there. They test it all the time. Depending on how much nitrogen nitrates are in the water, that will dictate how much nitrogen they put on the crop. Because as you just said, you know that water does have nitrogen in it, and that'll be good. Yeah, might save them on, might save them on their fertilizer bill, and uh, you know that's a good thing. Yeah, and so yeah. they'll do yeah. that. And these guys have reservoirs, and they and if there's any runoff, it may go to the reservoir. And you know, during during the winter or something, there's there's runoff, and the, the ground can't take anymore. It may go back into a reservoir, and they can reuse that water again. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. And, and of course, the dairies are a big big deal, and they grow a lot of corn and um, and, and and alfalfa, and they pretty much use their recycled dairy water for for growing those crops. Yeah, well, that's that's great because. Anybody that's seen one of those lagoons, it's not the blue lagoon. It's not the blue lagoon from the Valley High. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. I've been pipe irrigated that water, and it wasn't pretty. Easy <laughs> to ask a question? Yeah. yeah. You need to use it on the crop. Well, Patrick, I also wanted to talk a little bit about your perspective of what's going on in agriculture during, during our, our historic uh, pandemic that's going on. It's really challenging the agriculture because of the things I just said, because of you know, the workers, the, some of the most vulnerable in our society uh, are on the front lines of, you know, harvesting and growing our food, packing it, delivering it. Um, what do you see the farm community doing to to help keep our workers safe and, um, and our food supply, you know, um, um, safe and consistent and reliable? Yeah, of course. Uh, the agricultural workers in California, they actually face a, a double threat because they can catch the COVID virus if they're not careful, and they can lose their jobs because the collapse of the food service, the, the, you know, demand. And they have. They've lost their jobs because of that, because yeah. that's where most of it is in the impact in the vegetable industry. There was most of these vegetable growers sell to the food service as well as the open markets, and that's where a lot of, this, the, a lot of crops were not harvested because of that. And, but there's a lot going on right now among the, far, among the farm employees out there in the field 
there's a there's there's a lot of tailgate meetings. Let's say growers are very concerned about their labor supply because they without them the crops don't get harvested. So they're asking them to please, you know, keep six eight feet away from each other. Don't congregate too close, you know. And the wash stations, wash your hands. They put more washing stations out there to wash your hands very carefully and long, so you can so you can minimize any any spread of the infection. They're out there before they even get working. They're taking their temperatures. They're asking them how they feel, how they feel, and if they anybody at home has got any 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 symptoms, you know. And if they do, they send them home. So they're really mm-hmm. working hard to protect those workers out there, so they don't uh, spread it among themselves. How I don't know. I don't think it'll enter the food supply per se because the food, no. is, you know. But it. But the workers themselves, we're we're trying to protect them. And and you know, if if we had a if we if there was a big infection spread among the among the farm workers, that could mean a lot of crops not getting harvested. Oh yeah, yeah. And I think you know something else that maybe should be considered is making sure that these folks are paid if. They are sick and don't want to come. You know, they don't. I'm sure they don't want to come to work if they're sick, but they feel like they have to because, again, they're very uh, economically challenged and they need that paycheck and they might be coming to work anyway because they can't afford to miss that day of work. So I would, I would hope that one of the states or the industry's responses for those folks would be to pay them to stay home. You know, I mean. Yeah, and um, they do. They do. The farm workers to these to these growers are like family, and they will. They'll take good care of them. They're not going to just send them home and don't come back to work. You know, most of a lot of them are farm are, are working for farmer uh, farm contractors, farm labor contractors. A lot of these people yeah. are working for them. These fine workers that are doing all the hard work for all of us. You know, day and night, 24 hours a day, to 365 days a year, they're working. You know, they get the reg- they get the they get the time off that they're that they need. But they will they'll look after them and they'll and I know these farm labor contractors take care of them they have if they were to have to go home because of COVID. There's no doubt about it. Okay. All right, good, good, good. Can well, you can I um, ask a question? Yeah, yeah please, question. Uh, jump in. Sorry. Sorry, I don't like to always uh, challenge uh, jump in and, and ruin your show. But um, I wanted Patrick's opinion on one of my one of my interests is vertical farming and the success that it seems to be having in different places in, in the world. And what do you think about that, and do you see more of a future for that? Well, yeah, a good question. Yeah, we do see more vertical farming happening mainly in urban areas, you know, because that's where the most the mouths are to feed. It, we need it all. We need vertical farming. We need under-the-sea farming. We need to have uh, all types of farming in order to, 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 to give us all the food production that we need. Vertical farming is certainly viable. You know, the greenhouses, if, if they're on and they're in greenhouses, a lot of the greenhouses are growing vertically, and that's a lot. That's a big sector of what's going on in Europe, for instance. A lot of greenhouse work there. That's very successful. But on on the rooftop, vertical farming and things, all part of the big system of agriculture, and I think it all has a place, and we should honor all of this because those are farmers too, and I think it's very valuable. If they can harvest and get that food down to the marketplace downstairs, maybe on the ground floor, that's all part of agriculture. So I, I love it all. Yeah, one Thank of our you. previous guests, uh, Julian Cribb from Australia, really advocated, um, you know, bringing food production basically into the cities because that, that's where the people are, and that's where, as he said, that's where the nutrients are. <laughs> well, I, so. I, you know, that's idealistic, but there's no way you get the production, the volume that you need in the urban areas. You need to have vast fields 
so you have economies of scale. And most of the, we're yeah. not talking corporate farmers in California. We're talking family farmers. UC Davis reported, and they did a survey, that 85% of the farms in California are owned by family farmers. You know, so, but anyways, you need to have an economy of scale and, and yeah. to be able to produce large volumes. And that's what helps keep our food prices low. We pay the lowest price for food, obviously, than many other countries. Yeah. Yeah, yes, that that's true. Uh, you know, basically our our government subsidizes that. We've made sure that resources are available, that um, you know we have those economies of scale. But yeah, Julian Cribb was advocating that part of our food supply would come to the cities, not certainly all of it. Um, good. Yeah, know, probably, I think that's a good point. Good probably point. still half of it needs to be out in the field. You're not going to grow wheat on top of. Um, you know, a rooftop anywhere, but you could certainly grow cucumbers and tomatoes and lettuce and things like that. Sure, especially crops. And Absolutely. Rob, Rob, that's a really cool idea. I know you're really um, um, intrigued with this company on the East Coast, and I can't think of the name right now. Uh, the um, for the um, uh, yeah, there's several there's several companies that have it. And I'm I'm dying to go to one. I, I've seen videos on them and things, but I'd really want to see because they they use like 85 percent less water. They yep. use uh, LED lights to grow. They get rid of, or, or they, the reduction of, of uh, fertilizers and, chem, and chemistry and all kinds of things because everything's indoors, no bugs. Uh, so it, it's intriguing to me to see what you could do in a warehouse. You know, you yeah. warehouse and, go and go stack these things up, you know, 30, 40 feet high. Uh, it, it's interesting to me because, you know, the, the innovation and in technology has, has, has become really primitive. Pr- from here to, to the uh, farmers. I mean, you know, when I was a little kid and I went to a farm, you know, it was the old olden days. I won't say how long ago it was, but it was a long time ago. <laughs> the olden days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, but for today, I mean, you they have weather stations. They have artificial intelligence. They have smart controllers. They have, I mean, it's a whole, it's more science. You get people like Bayer Science coming in and fertilizing companies and, and seed companies and soil people. It's it's a whole mixture of things that make that crop grow. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a complicated. It's a it's you know it's a life system. It's not just a machine. It's a, a biological life system. It's um, more of an art than a science actually to grow a crop, and that's why we're so dependent on you know the feet in the field as well as all these all these instruments. It's really a combination of both to make it work. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, Patrick, we thank you so much for coming on. I see that we're at the top of the hour. Um, Rob's probably going to put the music on here in a moment and ask me to close out. Um, so I'll give you one last chance. Anything you'd like to add before we close out? What else want you to, I want to thank you for the discussion. I like what you guys are doing, educating people. And, and overall, I, I'm bullish about agriculture. I think it's going to continue very strong. I think on average California gets enough rain and snow to, to, for, for everybody to be happy, environmental, the cities, and the farmers, for everybody to have enough water that they have. I just wish we could think outside the box a little bit more.